Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Wisecrack's movie podcast, Show Me the Meaning. My, I am your host, Jared. All right, fuck it. <laughs> Welcome to Show Me the Meaning. Already. I tried. <laughs> you did good, man. Oh, thank you. Welcome to Show Me the Meaning. I'm your host, Jared. With me is the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Greg. Hey. We got Austin. Yo. And joining us today again is our resident comic book expert, Mr. Matthew Terrialt. How's it going, Matthew? It's not about who I am underneath the cowboy hat, but what I do <laughs> that defines me. That is the wrong movie, sir. That is the first movie. That's Batman Begins. Close enough. Yeah. Cool. So today, guys, we're we're fucking doing it. Today, we are doing the 2007 movie, The Dark Knight, directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Christian Bale and Heath Ledger. For those of you who listened to our last podcast, I might have announced that we were doing Jurassic Park. Uh, I screwed up looking at the calendar. So we're doing Jurassic Park a little bit later. I think we're doing it in December. But today, we're doing The Dark Knight, the one, the only. Really excited to talk about this movie with you guys. Let's get first impressions. What was it like the first time you watched this movie? What is this movie like in your life? What does this movie mean to you? Let's start with Greg. Oh, man. Um, I watched it again. I've seen this movie so many times. Uh, and as an actor, every time I watch this movie, I just think about like Christian Bell. I think about Morgan Freeman. And I wonder if they're on set when Heath Ledger is doing his thing. Because mm. when you see him acting, it's like, oh, my God. I got to step it up or I got to fake an injury because it's it's nobody else in that movie to me. It's a it's Heath Ledger's movie. Uh, it's not even Christopher Nolan's movie. He went so deep into this role. Like, I understand why he died. I get it. I, I totally – he went that deep. It's He's not even acting in it. The movie's so good. That opening scene is so excellent. Uh, the movie deals with so much. It's so deeper than just a regular Batman movie. It deals with life. It deals with morality. Uh, it deals with human issues. Real deep shit that uh, has this has this tint over it that uh, that you can just watch it as a child and just really enjoy the movie. But it, it deals with so much over it. And then the fact that he dies after the movie before it even comes out, it just added adds so many uh, layers on the movie. Um, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, every time I see it, it, it's it's one of those movies like No Country for Old Men for me. Um, it's just a really great classic movie. And R.I.P. to Heath, man. What a what a legend to go out on on that one. If you had to guess, how many times have you seen it? Probably 12 or 13, yeah. 15. I mean, but I also think about the times like I'm, I'm over somebody else's house and the movie's on. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's in the background. It's been a lot. So, but yeah, yeah. I, don't, I can go long winded on this. Cool. All right, Austin, what about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, the first time I saw this movie, I was I was completely blown away. You know, the, the performance, obviously, of Heath Ledger's Joker, as Greg said, is phenomenal. This is the movie that really made Christopher Nolan like a fucking super, superstar. That basically gave him blank checks for the rest of his life from movie studios, you know? Um, yeah. It was, it was phenomenal. I remember, especially when I was in grad school, I thought that this movie was so profound and so deep. I thought the political philosophy of the Joker was very interesting. Um, there are all kinds of swirling themes that, that even upon repeated viewings, I think you can extract. And obviously, I helped produce the uh, trilogy on Christopher Nolan. And so I spent a lot of time kind of watching that, that we produced for Wisecrack, obviously. Um, and I spent a lot of time, you know, rewatching it and... At that time, I again, I was like, wow, this is a masterpiece. And then I watched it last night. And I'm so fucking bored of this movie, man. 
I hear you. I mean, so there's no movie that can, hilarious. There's there's movie. no movie that can stand up to fifty viewings. No, I I I'm like at this point, I literally like. Of course, I'm being rhetorical, and we're gonna have an amazing conversation. So just take this for what it's worth. I was almost gonna like call in sick. You know, like I was like, what, what, what are we going to say? The movie's amazing. It changed superhero films. It changed the history of like big budget films. It proved that you can do smart big budget movies. Christopher Nolan's amazing. Heath Ledger's great. What? Okay. Podcast <laughs> over. Podcast <laughs> over. Go, go, go watch our Nolan part two on some philosophy themes. There we go. We're done. I don't know. I just, it's been talked to death. It's, and I'll be completely honest. I think that part of my annoyance with this is that so many people, because it is a very smart movie, and it's fucking, yeah. it, it is sharp, but I think people think it's smarter than it is, and that kind of, mm. I'm kind of like, I, like, let's just stop, like, forcing something, <laughs> and today, I'm going to be more superficial in my analysis. I'm going to talk about some other cool shit, uh, and, uh, well, I say that, and I'll probably get sucked into talking about Gerard or some shit like that, but <laughs> I'm going to try to be more superficial in my enjoyment of this movie as we talk about it today. Cool. All right, and Matthew. So this is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I almost did not see it in theaters. I was engaged wow. at the time, and my fiancé was a profligate spendthrift when it came to stupid things like <laughs> useless knickknacks for second cousins, but when it came to things like movies, just an utter miser, like a penny pincher did not want to spend anything. She told me, you get one movie this summer. And I was looking wow. at the trailer for oh. Dark Knight, but I was looking at the trailer for Hancock, and I'm like, oh, that's that's the better trailer right there. I think I'm going to go see Hancock. And as much as I resent her today for everything else in that relationship, I am so <laughs> glad she convinced me, no, you really want to see Batman. So, And it ended up being a perfect movie. Uh, and as perfect as it is, I, I'll say this. Nolan's slavish devotion to realism was definitely a necessary antiseptic to what was, at the time, a still bitter taste of the Schumacher era. And it was appropriate to the stories that Nolan wanted to tell, especially the real-world problems of terrorism, economic anxiety, and the next one. But we are so fortunate that the success of the Dark Knight trilogy did not impugn on the fungibility of Batman. Since Nolan, we've been blessed with Morrison's Batman, who shot evil itself, the platonic idea of evil, to death with a gun, and then time-traveled across human history. We've had Snyder's Batman, who defeated an endless multiverse of evil Batman who are all imbued with the powers of the Justice League. We've had the return of Adam West's Bright Knight in the comics and animated movies. We've had the phenomenal Lego Batman. Batman works as anything and everything from farcical to mythological and, yes, realistic like Nolan showed. But we are so blessed that he hasn't been relegated to the ghetto of realism given Nolan's success. Beautiful. Wow. God damn, Matthew. Matthew. Yeah. Oh, well, man, I got a chubby. Listen to you, man. That was, that was fucking awesome. I want to hear more about your ex-wife. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I was going to say. Definitely want to hear that conversation. Yeah, did that. Is that what I was going to say? If anything, if I know if anything can break up a marriage for Matthew, it's Batman. <laughs> Wasn't the deciding factor, but uh, okay. maybe if I stick around for the uh, Patreon-only part later. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I got to give you guys a confession. Uh, similar to what Austin is saying, this is the first time I did not rewatch the movie for the podcast. Okay. Because, like Austin, I know this movie frame per frame. I've seen this movie like 30 times. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, 
on the one hand, Austin, I agree. Like, I did have this sense of exhaustion going in. It's like, well, I literally think about this movie every day, or at least I did think about it every day for, like, years. Mm. We've covered it in so many videos, used it as a lens to talk about all sorts of ideas and videos, what hasn't been said. And I just realized that if I just go over some of my notes, it'll probably reinvigorate my excitement for talking about the movie. And I was right. I went over my notes, mm. and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember why this movie's so awesome. Because I knew that if I rewatched it, I should have done that. literally, I just, I know the sound cues. I know the music right. cues. I know every line of dialogue. <laughs> it's going to be, yeah, it's it's just well, not going to be when, fun. When you know the inflection of, like, secondary characters on a particular line, then you know you've seen it too many times, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And once again, there's no movie even a movie as good as this one that can sustain 50 viewings or even 30 viewings. Right. Uh, and I've kind of like promised myself that I would wait like maybe five years before watching it again. Just like let myself forget. Uh, and hopefully it'll kind of be fresh when I rewatch it. But I mean, I'm with Matthew. This, quite frankly, is probably one of my favorite movies ever. Is this I, the movie you've watched the most? No, I think I'm with you in that I've seen The Matrix the most. Okay, yeah. Um, but this is a close second. I mean, this movie was i mean it changed me it was you know how in our matrix podcast we talked about how uh the matrix awoke a generation to generally the idea of plato's allegory of the cave just this distinction between real and unreal and people had never really considered oh maybe my reality is false Mm -hmm. i feel like this movie kind of awakened a whole generation to the idea of nihilism and i think that um i mean i was one of them you know i was in college I think I was like a sophomore in college studying film and the ideas that the Joker presented really kind of reawakened my love for philosophy and my desire to to look closer at the ideas that were in this movie. And now I think because of something like The Dark Knight, this is why we have media today that is so obsessed with this idea of disillusionment. I mean, all these popular properties are about disillusionment. Rick and Morty, Cinema Sins, Honest Trailers, Adam Ruins Everything. Just seemingly everything is about disillusioning you from grand narratives, grand ideas. This is something Austin talks about a lot. We've talked about it on this podcast. But I think this is one of the the defining instigators of that trend. And, of course, Heath Ledger is amazing. The script, I think, is underappreciated because I think that, uh, yes, Heath Ledger is pretty much the thing that seals everything together but i was really upset that it didn't get any any nominations for best adapted screenplay or best original screenplay this movie is also the reason why i haven't seen the academy awards in over a decade good good as, call as soon as this was not nominated for anything i just yeah i just said nope well not interested anymore yeah. not even that it's like boycotting i'm just not interested in a group of people that can't appreciate something like this and even Heath Ledger's, I mean, he did he get nominated? He, he won. He, got, he won okay. posthumously. He okay, right, yeah, yeah. He did win, that's right. But, I mean, I don't know. If I'm being cynical, I would say that if he didn't die, he probably wouldn't have won. Oh, he probably wouldn't have. Yeah. But could you see him living after this? I, I This is one of those, like, uh, this is one of those acting jobs that I really couldn't see a guy doing another role after this, you know? Like, he see, really... I don't, I don't know if I really buy that. I, th- I, I think that... Can you from, see him from, doing like a sprite commercial after after this? Sure, why not? <laughs> no way, no way. He's the yeah. This is like you think it just fucked him up in the head too much. Yeah, he went too deep. He went too deep. You can <laughs> you can hear it in his voice. I mean, you can watch it and hear it in his voice. Like, oh yeah, this dude's gone. I mean, I think that's testament to how amazing the performance is. Yeah. But 
You know, it's interesting. I actually, for the first like 10 times I saw this movie, I couldn't even recognize Heath Ledger. Like yeah. I would look at the guy in the makeup and I'd be like, I know that's Heath Ledger, but I don't see his face. Yeah. You know? He's gone. And it's not just because of the makeup or the scars. There is something more to it. His eyes. He's gone. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. But, I mean, it's so sad. It, you know, this dude had kids and a family. I mean, a daughter and a family. But, yeah, he went too deep in the art. Yeah. All right, guys, let's go into a recap before we start breaking this baby down. So with their money in the grasp of Batman and the Gotham PD, the mob has been pushed to a point of desperation. In a last-ditch effort, they entrust the money to a Chinese national named Lau. But when Batman breaks extradition laws by capturing Lau in Hong Kong and bringing him back to Gotham, the mob is pushed to their most radical measure, hiring the Joker to bring down the bat. Thanks to Gotham's new idealistic district attorney, Harvey Dent, the legal system is willing to take down the entire mob in a RICO case. Harvey's seeming incorruptibility makes Batman... Harvey's seeming incorruptibility makes Batman think that one day he'll be able to hang up the cape and cowl and be with Rachel, but unfortunately, Rachel's in love with Harvey Dent. Meanwhile, the Joker is bringing Gotham to its knees with his terrorist attack, saying the only thing that will stop him is if Batman turns himself into the police. Bruce is just about to turn himself in when Harvey Dent beats him to it. Batman and the Gotham PD are able to capture the Joker in his attempt to kill Dent, but they soon find out that his capture was all part of the plan. <laughs> the Joker's plan kills Rachel, horribly disfigures Dent, and puts Lau back in the hands of the mob. The Joker continues his reign of chaos and even infects the now disfigured Dent with his vision of cosmic indifference. Dent finds the corrupt cops that led to his injury and Rachel's death and goes on a killing spree. Faced with the Joker's latest plan to get two fairies to blow each other up, Batman is forced to invade the privacy of every person in Gotham in order to locate the Joker and stop him. In the end, Batman stops the Joker and kills Dent seconds before he's about to kill Commissioner Gordon's son. Knowing that all the progress Gotham has made under the mantle of Dent would be undone as soon as the public learns of his turn, Batman decides to take responsibility for his murders to uphold the pure, idyllic image of Gotham's fallen angel. And so he rides out into the night, chased by the cops, the hero that Gotham deserves. End of movie. Oh, thank you, Greg. Thank you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Hey, all you true crime fans. This is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. So I'm going to just start going into this... Um basically breaking down the movie as if we hadn't talked about it to death. Uh, and you guys chime in if you have anything more interesting to say. But the first thing, uh, let's just let's just talk about the Joker up top. Um, so, first of all, I had not read The Killing Joke before seeing this movie, so the idea of the Joker as a nihilist of one who jokes because everything is trivial was so novel to me. Matthew, had uh, were you? Uh, I, I imagine you probably read it before seeing the movie. Uh, I actually forget the timeline. That was like ten years ago. I no, I didn't read it when it originally came out. Uh, I was way too young. Uh, I believe I did. Don't quote me on that one, though. So, but when you saw Heath Ledger's version of the Joker, uh, how did you respond? Yeah, I was as blown away as anyone else, even having read so many of the comics. Uh, and I think the comics since have 
matched, uh, probably not beaten Nolan's interpretation, but at least matched, especially Snyder's uh, interpretation, uh, where he has two arcs, one where the Joker's acting as Batman's court jester, and he is in love with Batman, essentially, and then where he feels betrayed by Batman and has just utter hate and contempt, and Snyder just encapsulates those two emotional responses between the uh, protagonist and the antagonist so perfectly. Uh, I think that's the only other time that you know, the relationship's been explored so successfully. And I really hope whoever likes Nolan's interpretation would take the effort to seek out the comics there. Because when I saw this, I thought to myself, wow. And, and I don't think this is true in terms of cinema history, but I was like, wow, I don't think I'd ever seen a, quote, supervillain that wasn't just crazy or mad or just wanted power. This is the first time I saw a superhero that seemingly wasn't a monster. Like, as he says, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curb. Um, there's a method to his philosophy yeah. and his madness. And... Um, he was a cool, evil guy. He, you, you saw the coolness in him. Yeah, he was so cool. Yeah, Do you even think like you look at Jack a method, Nicholson. A method implies some sort of standard by which he is measuring his activities. Whereas I, I think it'd be more interesting to see him as the sort of like embodiment of like coming out the other side of Nietzsche's notion of the transvaluation of values, right? Which is this perpetual idea of of endless revaluation, that the world has no meaning, and so you're perpetually engaging in this this activity of, uh, of recreation. And I think the way that we think of that in terms of the Joker is rather than being compelled from without, right, like the superego injunction, obey sort of the rules of, of society, he completely does not do that. He is impelled from within. So that's when he talks about what is it the unstoppable force meets an, an immovable object, like, he's the unstoppable force, and he and is Batman's just... Batman's the immovable object. Right. He he is confronting limits and breaking the limits. He's Nietzsche talks about philosophizing with a hammer. Like, Joker is the hammer. He is like the embodiment of that idea, being impelled rather than compelled from without. He so, sort of flows from himself rather than subsuming himself under external pressures. And So as the Joker would say... I'm just a dog chasing cars. Right. And and that doesn't mean that they're that doesn't mean that he's crazy because he's uh, it, again and I think there's like this time the thing that was most fascinating on this watch was I really wanted to pay attention for whatever reason to his responses to the accusation that he's crazy or that he's a freak and I really wanted to pay attention to his two narratives about the origin of his scars, you know, the first one being a sort of edible narrative and the second one being a sort of guilt complex narrative. I thought there was something really interesting in – and this obviously goes to his performance as well. But it was so fascinating when he is accused of being crazy and a freak, how much that hurts him and how much you can tell that that, that is the very thing that has haunted him probably since childhood. Um, he's clearly someone who has been in and out of institutionalization. And so there's something really interesting also in him hiring schizophrenics, right? And – so I'm thinking of Nietzsche. I'm thinking of Deleuze. Deleuze has this notion that he called deterritorialization, or Deleuze and Guattari talk about the idea of the, schizo the schizophrenic a lot. Um, and it is. It's that idea of being this free line of flight that fl that flies from the codes, that breaks through the codes. And then Deleuze says, and then when that happens, you can't help but laugh. And that's the Joker's constantly laughing because hysteria and mania and joy and laughter are all part of when you break the codes. 
Well, I would argue so that there is kind of a method in in the sense that like just because Jonathan Nolan is writing a screenplay and he wants to create a compelling villain, he actually does have a villain that seems to have a mission with his acts because they're not just random acts of violence. They prove a point that morality is a sham. When you take people's physical comforts or safety away, they'll turn into wild animals. And I love how in seemingly every single thing that happens that this is ultimately his mission. And I'm going to list them out here just so that we can be extra exhaustive. So at the beginning, the bank robbers each kill each other to make their shares bigger. And then after the Joker kills Gamble, the uh, black mobster, he says, now which one of you wants to join our team? (laughs) Oh, sorry, we only have one spot open, so we're going to have tryouts. And then he breaks the cue stick before the friends have to fight each other to death in order to survive. Even small things, like when Commissioner Loeb, this is uh, before Gordon gets the title, he asks, how did they get my DNA? And Gordon answers, someone close to you might have picked it up on a glass or tissue. So once again, someone close to the commissioner likely betrayed him because that's what humanity does. Uh, And then there's the great line where he tells Chechen, or Chechen tells the Joker, my men won't work for a freak like you. And he says, why don't we cut them up and feed them to your pooches? Then we'll show you how loyal a hungry dog really is. Mm. So I think that, and then of course the whole thing with Coleman Reese, if someone doesn't kill Coleman Reese, I blow up a hospital, the ferry boat social experiment, even though they we don't they don't blow each other up, but that's what he's trying to prove. So yeah. to say that it's, I mean, it's it's weird because I understand what you're saying, but it seems like you could probably make that argument better towards Jack Nicholson's Joker because all he really does is laugh and do random things. Well, okay, so I don't I don't want to split hairs, and I don't want to belabor this point. So I think what I mean is is that it's more about his disposition to the world. So for example, like when he breaks the pole cue and he says there's tryouts and there's three dudes that have to compete, and there's this like stick now that obviously they have to fight to the death, and there's only one slot to be filled. He didn't plan that before he went into that building because he probably didn't know exactly how many. People were going to be in there. It's not like he said, I'm going to take a pool cue. I'm going to go in there. You have me in this bag. And then uh, I'm going to hold open tryouts for one spot. I think there's an element of improvisation that I'm saying that I think flows from a radical freedom that he experiences as this untethered being that isn't restricted by the codes that impose themselves upon us that determine the way how we're supposed to act. Not that he doesn't have a plan. Obviously, he had to have a plan to know when the school bus in the opening scene is going to be able to drive out and how that's a brilliant plan because it disguises the school bus along with this line of other school buses after robbing the bank. So it's not that he doesn't have tactics. It's just that there isn't some external like rigid structure that's imposing itself upon him or determining his actions, whereas everybody else in his mind is determined by the structures of the superego, this, this, the, the demands that are imposed by society. And he is literally, in his own mind at least, whether he is or not, he is a sort of like free being that is breaking all that shit. And then the, the only reason I, I mentioned the laughter is just because like Deleuze talks about this and he says, one cannot help but laugh when the codes are confounded. And it's that idea that like, when you're that like humor emerges like in awkwardness and discomfort and when you're kind of like just challenging the social the social norms you can't help but feel discomfort and laugh so is it a genuine laugh though because it seems to be that Heath Ledger's performance is specifically giving itself a performance of a chuckle it never seems that he is genuinely you know in stitches at his own antics uh, he's almost more reminiscent of Frank Miller's uh, Joker who 
it's an ironic name, you know, because he admits, like, even though I'm not very funny, like, he is just vile. And yes, he sees the absurdity in the world, but that's not actually causing a genuine emotional response from him, you know, with audible laughter, other than that which he just feigns. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think I think he's definitely enjoying himself. What do you think, Matthew? I definitely think at the end when he gets thrown off the building, it's genuine laughter. I think it all... I. I think he's he's add, I think it's different times. I think he's adding to it. You know, he's he's amused by his own, by his own self, and um, I think he's just laughing to be laughing because he's crazy. But <laughs> never, he's not that crazy. Before this movie, I never even really liked the character of the Joker. I always thought it was kind of lame. I was like, oh, okay, like it's a clown, and he laughs a lot. That doesn't <laughs> seem very scary. Oh, he he rearranged. He yeah. He he just changed the whole game as the Joker. I it's funny. I feel like. Uh, this movie leaked over to like society too, especially in America. I mean, the day the movie came out, then we have that uh, that, that was killer. the third one. That was The Dark Knight Rises. Okay, all right, all right, all right. But still, I mean, these. I mean, like, I feel well, like, no, but that's still to your point. Yeah, yeah. The, no, the the style of him leaked over. I mean, people are are doing things crazy like this and this in the same vein too almost like you know fuck the money i don't care about the money i want i want people to change i'm not you know it's i want i want people to know who i am but i want people to to know uh what i stand for manifestos and shit like yeah, that you know like we talked about this a little bit when we did fight club a couple weeks ago and it's just the idea that like just like tyler durden whose radicalism is like sexy so is the joker exactly even though he's Mm -hmm. the bad guy even Mm -hmm. though the protagonist condemns him even though he loses at the end which is something you can say about both characters the sexiness of their radicalism just well does he lose at the end because he has his ace in the hole he turns oh that's right that's right good point well he gets captured no you're right he does win in the end in a sense he wins the uh the moral battle Mm -hmm. and he destroys batman he forces batman to have to become the scapegoat which might and he forces batman to kill somebody which is against his one rule rule. right and he also won the prisoner's dilemma where they voted to kill the other boat like the majority of gothamites were not good people in that situation yeah Mm. Yeah, it was just that one guy who just who just couldn't push the button. And he exposes Batman's virtue as the sort of semiotic symbol that he claims he wants to be by giving him that dilemma because he chooses Rachel Dawes, even though he ends up in this space where it's Harvey Dent. But he chooses Rachel. He chooses his object of affection, his object of desire, which he sort of demystifies and deconstructs this uh, immovability of the symbol and he shows that well you're really just a frail human who's driven by passions too let's go to the bank manager the i mean awesome opening scene with the fucking bank robbery one of the best bank robberies ever they even have the guy the guy who plays the bank manager is the guy from heat have you seen heat the the other the other best bank robbery movie of all time okay um and uh I just want to read kind of what I consider to be like the Joker's thesis statement. So the bank the bank manager asks him, what do you believe in, huh? What do you believe in? To which the Joker says, I believe that whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. That line confused me for a long time. Um, and I'm just curious if you got what you guys took away from it and kind of over. I've read The Killing Joke and seen the movie or whatever since this, and I've kind of reformulated what I think about that line. I'm curious what you guys thought. I just think life fucks you up. Right? Um, yeah. You know, um, yeah, you learn something every day, and 
your, the struggles of life have a way. People say it makes you stronger, but I mean, the Joker just twisted it and makes you weirder and crazier. And um, yeah, it's life, you know. It- it certainly foreshadows what happens to Dent, you know, where that explosion does not make him stronger. It, mm. you know, breaks him in the way that Two-Face mm. had intended. And it is also foreshadowed by what he says to uh, Bruce Wayne earlier in the restaurant. Uh, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Obviously, at some point, Joker lived to see himself become stranger, become the villain. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I didn't even think about that with regards to Dent. I mean, I'm thinking about it. See, you're learning something new about this movie. I love it, man. Um, I I was thinking about it. It's obviously a take on Nietzsche's quote, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And there is something interesting in, in this isn't, he's not a Nietzschean character in like the pure sense because he's not like some sort of overman, right? The, the Ubermensch. He's not some sort of like strong, despotic type of composed individual. He's almost like a non-individual. He's like an empty placeholder. You know, he doesn't have an identity. He makes his own clothes. They don't have any labels. Um, He has no record. He has no name. He is this empty signifier that just sort of floats and destroys things and redefines things and makes things weird. You know, he is something that exists outside of the semiotic order, outside of the symbolic, outside of everything that makes sense to Gotham. And it's that idea that what doesn't kill you if it doesn't actually kill you, because killing you would be the end of the symbolic altogether, right? There would be no social order. There would be no meaning. There would be no society. There would be no impositions or demands or expectations. But if you don't die, it's sort of – but you're it, it's close to killing you. It sort of reorients yourself to death. You're not afraid of death. Death doesn't matter. And then at the same time, you can exist while living within the symbolic or within society, but you can exist – by not necessarily having to exist within it. And that's what Strange is. That's why he's so sensitive to the accusation of being crazy or to being a freak. And I think, I don't know, in his two, I'm really interested what you guys think in his two sort of like origin stories for the Scars. Do you think that they're completely fabricated? Do you think they're based on any reality? I don't know. I I had an inclination last night about him, but I kind of want to hear what you guys think about him. So I'm glad you brought that up because that kind of ties into my ultimate reading of this line. So in terms of the two stories and how he got the scars, I think this is – so the way that I'm reading this, and Matthew, correct me if I'm wrong, but this version of the Joker is highly inspired by Alan Moore's The Killing Joke in which the Joker is most clearly a nihilist. And in that graphic novel, basically it's intercut with an adventure that Batman is on to try and stop the Joker – with the Joker's backstory. And so you spend this whole graphic novel learning about the Joker's backstory. And then towards the end, he just says, hey, it could all be bullshit. It's like multiple choice. And I think that he was basically, I think Nolan was basically borrowing this idea of it's like multiple choice. And basically he's just giving conflicting answers because none of it matters. And I think that this whole thing about whatever doesn't kill you makes you stranger is just another, when he's taking off the mask, he's revealing his scars. He's in a sense... I think indicating to the bank manager that, you know, this is what I believe in, that life is going to fuck you up or that uh, tragedy is going to fuck you up. But I think that he doesn't even believe in that. I think that ultimately, the I think the script is very clever here that when the bank manager says, you know, uh, crooks in this town, we used to believe in something, honor, respect. What do you believe in, huh? What do you believe in? And he just gives him this line that ultimately is just part of the multiple choice. It's part mm. of these three options that ultimately mean nothing. 
And so I think that that's like the character thesis is that we have a nihilist Joker is that he basically and I think that the smoke grenade that goes off in the manager's mouth seconds later is in a sense the punchline to his nonsensical answer. And I think that's that is the answer to the question is that it's a punchline. He believes in nothing. Is that like his version of the the gun that like the flag comes out and it says bang on it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely inspired by the multiple choice line from Killing Joke. But I would go further by saying that we are supposed to assume that all of the above are false. That because the Joker is saying it, these are what we can rule out as his origin stories. He's not going to slip up and give one of them as the real and then mm. uh, it's not two lies and a truth. He's just a liar through and through. And even absolutely. the other slight backstories he gives, you know where he talks about, my father always said, if you're good at something, never do it for free. I think we even have to assume those aren't him letting his guard down. Those are even more bullshit where he's just saying things to misdirect. Mm. Of course, because he burns the money and says, everything burns. Beautiful. (laughs) That's one of my favorite parts. But um, there's a part of the movie, I was watching some... Uh, another video that was uh, talking about this movie and, and talking about uh, Joker's backstory, and somebody was saying that he probably had some military uh, training in this backstory. I've heard one. that. Yeah, yeah, and it was a cool theory that I, I haven't, uh, I didn't digest before. You know, I just it made me. Uh, the, and they brought up the scenes where uh, he was getting interrogated by Batman and how he kind of flipped it on Batman and like, oh, you don't go for the head first. That makes him all fuzzy. And he punched right. him in the hand, and you know Batman's trying to beat him up, and he was like, "You have nothing to threaten me by." Uh, and the part where he's at the hospital with Harvey Dent, and he's talking about you know a group of men go in and they blow him up. Uh, I just never thought about that theory before, but it totally makes sense. And how he uh, was in the military that that scene where they're about to shoot uh, the governor. Uh, or the the mayor, and he has his no pain on his face, and he just like looks like an injured soldier. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know what that originated on crack.com. I know they have a good breakdown of that theory, though. And they also have another theory that, you know, speculates. And they give a lot of good reasons why the Joker is his long-lost brother, uh, Thomas Wayne Jr. Uh, I, I do oh, like the military theory insofar as this is definitely a movie about the war on terrorism. So to have Joker be someone that went over to Iraq, got these scars, you know, as part of a war injury and came back with PTSD even more broken than that. And he is just a result of this war on terror. And now he's engaging it here at home mm. uh, was, would definitely be appropriate to the themes of the movie. Yeah. And so what doesn't kill you makes you stranger is that like a sort of like almost direct symptomatic response to his experience that he didn't die in the war, but he definitely got fucked up otherwise. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's just, it's, Another reason why he's the perfect villain is that we can have these conversations and it like if we got an answer, it would kind of ruin it. But the fact that his antics point to all these different possible interesting motivations and backstories, I think, makes it just fun, makes it awesome. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, if we camp too hard in any of these theories and say, I figured it out, he must be a vet or I have figured it out. The first story is real and the second one is false or whatever it is. Uh, whenever we engage in that, it sort of defeats the purpose of him as being this like deterritorializing, deconstructing entity, just like a powerful entity, right? All right. So one of the things that I respect about this movie and specifically the screenplay is that it's a classic in terms of your the themes that you're dealing with. If it's it's a classic order versus chaos story. Obviously, Batman is order. The Joker is chaos. 
Um, this is done a couple times visually in the show, in the movie. I actually really appreciate how during the Harvey Dent fundraiser, we see Batman and he's going into his safe room because he's going to get all of his Batman gear and save the day. And there's some really smooth tracking shots as they follow Batman down the hallway when he like punches that guy or like pistol whips that guy. And then while the Joker is interrogating the guests at the party, it's like a handheld camera and it's like really erratic. I Just everything about this movie is so deliberate, but also so graceful. And then I think that's a perfect transition to us talking about Harvey Dent, Gotham's idol. This was another thing that I had never thought of the character of Two-Face in this context. I had never thought of him as an extension of the Joker's idea. I, I mean, if this truly is that Christopher Nolan was like, all right, I got to put two villains in here. I'm going to take Two-Face and the Joker and have... Uh, Two-Face or Harvey Dent originally be this kind of like idealistic Christ-like figure and then I'm going to have him be tainted by the Joker and then he's the the Two-Face coin flipping thing is going to mirror the Joker's nihilism like that's fucking brilliant like <laughs> yeah. was was that done in a in a comic before this or was this the first time the comic I mean the what about the TV show the Batman TV show that came out in the 90s uh, the cartoon the animated uh, oh, series the animated yeah. series the animated yeah um I always thought, because I'm a comic book head, but well, back in the day, uh, I always thought Two Face's character was corny. Uh, the character who played him, Tommy something, played him in the oh, oh Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones. And he all, uh, just was. It just made me hate the Two Face character even me more. Too. But the animated series, I was like, oh, I like this guy. But this was the first first time I saw him, you know, created in real life and uh, gave that substance as the same animated series Batman had. Uh, I thought they, I thought they, they did great with um. With the with Two Faces, you know the Harvey Dent character. I, I thought it was great in this movie. The great thing about uh, Harvey Dent is that Two Face is not just a perfect compliment to Joker. Harvey Dent, as District Attorney, is a perfect compliment to Batman because yeah. Nolan has this thesis that Batman is just a second best. He's a stopgap compared to what Harvey Dent could be. That you have this systematic organized crime infecting all levels of society, but then the ideal is systematic justice you know the legal system operating as it should be and that's what harvey dick can achieve but batman can only help shepherd that to where dent can make that possible and it's just the opposite in the comics in the comics you have crime which is just ever pervasive throughout human history and the justice system is not something that is ever going to be able to address it but you have something better you know you don't have batman as a stopgap Batman is the thing that the justice system has evolved into. Batman as an idea is the solution to crime itself. You know, according to Morrison, Batman Inc. is the thing that supersedes even the justice system. Uh, the inspiration that Batman serves as in getting all these other heroes from Robin as Dick Grayson first through this international league of Batman eventually to address crime at the most fundamental level so it's interesting to see that juxtaposition which with how morrison versus nolan interpret batman hmm. but do you think that morrison is even a reaction to nolan's version uh no i don't think so he was writing at around the same time and he had okay. his own ideas about the character for years okay hmm. so harvey's double-sided coin is probably one of my favorite cinema symbols ever you know, at first it's double-sided, representing his rigid adherence to justice, morality, and order. 
He makes his own luck, as he says. But then after he becomes Two-Face, I just love that fucking shot where he reaches over and he gets the coin and he flips it over and it's scarred on one side. Hmm. It's just so good. (laughs) It's so good. And I love how the whole movie, uh, basically the structure of the movie, resembles that. He gets uh, to be Two-Face at around just about the halfway mark. And so for half the movie, he is like, you know, this perfect white knight, this great paragon. And then through the second half, he is this scarred being, you know, who Joker has successfully corrupted his soul. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's lovely because him creating his own fate is him saying that my moral fiber will always guide me and I will do what I want and what I want is the right thing, right? And and don't worry, trust me, and I'm I'm like the great man, right? Like don't worry, like I've got this. And then after he becomes destroyed, that that it's like a porcelain doll, you know. We didn't realize how fragile he really was. He was clinging too tightly to these notions that themselves are contingent and flimsy. And Joker was the only one that knew how to, to to reach that breaking point. And then from then on, then it's about fate again, right? I mean, 50-50 chance isn't exactly fate. Um, there's still a, there's still a, like a mathematical principle to it. But nevertheless, with each coin toss, there is an element of chance that, that governs him that is no longer driven by his strength of his will or that is conditioned by these other structures that gave him that moral fiber previously. And that, I think, is a really fascinating turn that adds so much, just adds another layer to this film. Because I think when we think about the film more often than not, people think about it as the Joker versus Batman. But really, Harvey Dent's turn in this film is so crucial to understanding why this film has the depth that it has. Absolutely. I would love to see this movie with Dent as the protagonist. I, like, I can almost, you know, like if there was like a, a stage opera version of this, it would be just like Dent, but like there's the angel and devil on his shoulders of the Joker and Batman just pulling him in these different directions. Um, anyway, so let's talk about how the how Batman ends up defeating the Joker. And I think that um, I also want to bring into this conversation what Matthew said about how this movie is about the war on terror. Um, so there's a lot of 9-11 imagery, especially with the the wreck that uh, is there because of Rachel's death. And then I think the commonly held argument is that the Joker represents uh, Islamist extremists who do not operate by reason. And Batman kind of represents, well, I don't know. This is I, I don't want to make this too one-to-one, but the, I guess, I remember reading this article back when the Oscars were happening in 2007 or 2008, whenever this was, that said that one of the reasons why Hollywood wasn't so hot on this movie is because they felt that Batman was like Bush-era apologisms because they were basically saying, you know, Batman creates the sonar machine. He has to invade the privacy of everyone in Gotham in order to stop this evil. And they're saying, well, (laughs) right, this is the Patriot Act or this is Bush invading Iraq. And, you know, basically they're saying that Christopher Nolan says that these men have to do these things in order to stop evil. So I actually bought into that theory uh, that it was an apology for the Bush administration for many years. But eventually, uh, I came to see it a little bit differently, uh, that all these things, the extraordinary rendition of Lee, the enhanced interrogation of Joker, the warrantless wiretapping of Gotham, 
Batman only does those things up until a point while the crisis is going on. But then he has uh, Lucas Fox, you know, type in that one thing and with a keystroke, it's all gone. It's not like Congress constantly renewing the Patriot Act. Mm. Uh, The heroism of Batman is in his moral fortitude to give up these powers when the crisis is no longer there. And that Mm. contrasts with the Bush administration and the administrations that have followed that have kept us in this perpetual war on terror. What do you think? What do you think about it being? Uh, so, in what way then is it potentially a commentary on like the war on terror? If it's not an an apology for Bush era right. politics, so I would say that yeah. the thesis of the film is what uh, Alfred says: endure. And where he's explaining to uh, Rachel, you know, why Harvey is doing what he does, he says. Perhaps both Bruce and Mr. Dent believe that Batman stands for something more important than the whims of a terrorist. And what this reminded me of was uh, the reaction uh, Jesu Charlie Hebdo, you know, following the terrorist attacks on uh, Charlie Hebdo, where all of France came together, the whole world, and they were saying, like, we're not going to be scared, you know, we're not going to give up our free speech, you know, just to satisfy the demands of these evil individuals. And it's kind of unfortunate now that Europe is going in a very different direction where they're not enduring, where they are kind of uh, acquiescing to uh, illiberalism in many ways. So in terms of what Alfred says, another thing that's interesting is he tells the whole story about the jewel thief in Burma. And he says the lesson that he learned was burn the forest down. Does he so so that obviously parallels with Alfred saying, hey, the only way to catch a jewel thief is to basically fuck a bunch of shit up until you find him similarly so batman takes that to heart and says well looks like i'm gonna have to invade the privacy of everyone in gotham in order to catch the joker i guess does alfred ever we never see alfred realize that oh maybe i shouldn't have told him that or something like that because it's it's weird that both of those statements come from alfred and one of them batman definitely takes to heart and does which is the sonar machine and also the fact that Alfred says sometimes uh, people just want to watch the world burn. I yeah, think well, that, you know, that, that's the Joker. Yeah, but but, but he wasn't endorsing that Batman himself watch the world burn. You know, no, he's no, saying no, yes, no, no, that no. is how they did catch the Jewel Thief. But I don't think that was ever a recommendation, even if Batman might have taken it that way. I'm, I'm not blaming Alfred, is what I'm saying. Yeah, because because the issue is is how are we going to organize society? Like, how are we going to institute laws, norms? Uh, social ethics, what standard, what criteria, what measurement, and then what technologies are we going to institute so that we can manage our resources? And I don't just mean the physical resources like water and land and capital and uh, goods, consumption goods, but I also mean resources in terms of our emotional resources and our familial resources and our friendships. Like how are we going to create our society so that we can actually have an ethical, some some semblance of a good life, right? And, you know, the, the idea of watching the world burn or burning the forest down, is that going to be a, an action that will lead to an appropriate ethic to govern uh, a social setting? And I think that's kind of the tension that's that's being kind of wrestled with, even with, if this is some sort of elaboration on the war on terror, is this idea of, 
enduring, is that the best way to organize a society that is experiencing what seems to be chaos, what seems to be an irrational external foe imposing itself, right? I mean, how, how do we understand the, the collision between the, these various uh, entities of force that are colliding with one another? And then what's our response going to be? And that's why we talked about in the second part of the Nolan series about Rene Girard and his idea of the scapegoat and mimetic rivalry and, you know, having this uh, system of imitation so that you can, like, break out of these cycles of violence and rivalry to kind of erect some sort of standard that will allow – that will kind of, like, pacify people, that will allow them to actually be an ethical society. Um, and – I don't know. It's it's a really difficult terrain to navigate, and I think seeing it done through a fucking comic book movie is fucking brilliant. I mean, it is fantastic. Um, yeah. I I I think we're confusing some terms here because we're equating uh, watching the world burn or the whole forest burn down with Batman using uh, the sonar. I, I would say watching the world burn that's an excess of chaos that's too much of the joker's nihilism uh whereas the sonar is an excess of batman being representative of order it's too much order in society and how that's the opposite side of the coin so to speak but isn't that sure taking that power though and like I'm, i'm i'm taking your privacy away uh to that degree isn't that just a step towards watching the the world burn now i mean somebody having that much power over you and you don't even know it it's um I you know I just that's the uh, it's the reason why I pre- I prefer the Joker character so much uh because he basically shows the country that oh you think you guys are so civilized uh and you think these people are are doing terrorist acts that you've already perpetuated on 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 them already and and just showing the same folks that you are just as bad as them and I'm just as bad as you and I'm 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 both of you guys you know that's why Harvey Dent's character was so great cuz it's showing you guys think you're good, you guys, but I'm bad. And it's just showing everybody's fucked up. We're I mean, all maybe, fucked up. I mean, I, I do think that we're supposed to think that they are different. And so Matthew is absolutely right to make the distinction. The point is, is what is going to be the metric by which we organize a society? Is it better to kind of engage in this sort of like deterritorializing, watching the world burn? I mean, that doesn't seem conducive to a, a cohesive society. Cool. Okay, then what about like the overbearing totalitarian Uh, like despotic, I'm going to spy on everything you do so that you have no freedom. Well, that doesn't seem to be a good way to build a social society either. So either way, it's still questioning what is an ethical society. This goes back to Plato uh, in the Republic, uh, just the ancient philosophical question, what is the good life? How are we supposed to organize what a, a proper society ought to be? What does that even mean at the outset? And these questions are all swirling around. The point is, is that these various signifiers, Batman, Joker, well, just Batman and Joker, I guess, really, because Dent kind of maybe has a a different sort of role in that. But they have these two opposing positions that shift. Well, Batman's might change, right? But they have different orientations to what it means to try to build a good society. And I think that's really what's that's what makes that's what makes Batman. Or I think you could even read this film without the Dark Knight Rises, without taking that into consideration. I think this film can be read to having a, a quite controversial message because you can see Batman as a necessary evil. Kind of, you know, if you were to say that he represents order through force and, yes, order through invading people's privacy and doing immoral things, but, I mean, I think you can read the end of this movie as saying that we just need somebody to do that. As a necessary temporary evil, you know, 
that's why his whole goal is to not become or not to stay Batman. You know, Nolan wants him to give up being Batman. You know, he keeps saying that day is coming when Gotham doesn't need me anymore. Yes, he is committing this opposite error of the Joker, but it's just temporary, just for the time being, to get to the stable society. Nolan's not making the claim that Batman's totalitarian rule over Gotham is what we need in permanence. He's saying dense, you know, liberal free society that's still free of crime uh, is the ideal, and then Batman is just the catalyst to get there. That's really interesting, and I think I, I think I like that a lot. And I think one of the things that people miss in this film, too, is when they designate Batman as being a Christ figure. And in a profound sense, he's not. And it's this profound sense. Jesus was innocent. Batman was guilty. He actually did break the law. He did do something that was immoral, right? So uh, we talked about Rene Girard in this. Again, I've, I've mentioned it a couple times. The second part of our Nolan series talks about this. Rene Girard has a theory. He's an anthropologist, literary theorist about the scapegoat. But the way that he looks at... Uh, you know, kind of what he calls like traditional or archaic societies, is that whenever there's a scapegoat in his terminology, the scapegoat actually is guilty. The scapegoat did do the thing that then binds the society together in their accusation of the scapegoat. But the figure of Jesus is innocent. He didn't do the thing. So it's a different type of scapegoat. It's a, it's a different way of looking at it. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament is different than what you see in archaic societies and in particular what's on display here in The Dark Knight. Batman is fucking guilty. And so he does kind of – it's almost like he's, uh, he's bearing the guilt of like, – it's like a just punishment, like a due punishment uh, for what he did. And I think there's something kind of interesting in thinking about that as being a sort of temporary reprieve so that we can kind of figure out what the fuck is going to happen next. And then you get the next film. And Dent even says as much at the press conference where he says, yes, Batman is guilty and he deserves to be locked up, but not because the terrorists demanded it. It has to be on our terms as a society, exactly. not due to fear. And again, that's what Matthew was talking about earlier, which is that idea of the legal system that still isn't destroyed, right? It still is there. Right, it, that's still what's governing the order, and is that going to be a sufficient condition to create a peaceful society? Yeah, so let's just go ahead and talk about the ending. This is one of my favorite endings of any movie ever, uh, where he Batman decides to maintain the belief in Harvey Dent as the pure savior and takes upon himself all of Dent's murders and rides out into the light as the hero we deserve. And yeah, we talk about in a lot of our a lot of our videos kind of the noble lie, this idea that also shows up in the Republic, the idea that a lie is required to bind a society together. And I think that uh, this definitely affirmed that. I don't really know what exactly happens in The Dark Knight Rises. We can talk about that in a different podcast. But this was always just this is just so powerful to me. And one of the reasons why it's my favorite movie ever, because uh, as as Austin will tell you, since I th on his podcast we talked about one of my favorite pieces of literature, The Grand Inquisitor by Dostoevsky, I, I might agree that we need noble lies. I mean, I don't know. There, someone could say, especially after our kayfabe video that we just did, maybe everything's a fucking political performance, you know? Maybe everything maybe. Is, is some sort of, you know, we're, 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 we're storytellers by nature. Uh, the playwright David Mamet talks about this, that, Everything that we do is drama. And even, I think, I, I don't know if I've mentioned it on this podcast or elsewhere, but 
everything that I do, I'm, I'm creating some sort of inflection. I'm trying to create a story. I'm trying to convince people. I'm trying to appeal to people. You know, the tone in my voice goes up at a certain place. I'm exaggerating how big the fish was, um, how, how beautiful or unattractive or how uh, inspiring or whatever the various thing or person or experience was. There is a sense of drama that's being infused into everything that we do and tell. And in that pursuit of telling stories by seeking purpose and meaning and trying to communicate, we're kind of lying. You know, we're not being entirely truthful. We're being a little bit dishonest. And so maybe there's a sense in which, yeah, that that lies sort of have become us. Yeah, I never liked that. I never liked the ending. Me you personally. didn't? Nah, I just, Why? Because I felt that, you know... Uh, I, I saw it as the the government's like, all right, this is what really happened, and you know we're going to take it. I just don't like being lied to. Um, I think <laughs> I think this country has been lied to so many so much. Because you're in um, L.A., man, you're like fucking stop bullshitting me, man. Yeah well, yeah, well, it's just I mean, you start seeing the the evidence of lies. You know, you start thinking like America. I mean, I work with kids, man. And these these kids think they're so they think they got everything going going on for them, but they're dumb as bricks. Uh, <laughs> Japan and China, you know, are so ahead of us. I mean, it's just Americans. We're so fucking lied to, man. We we we're just we're fat. Uh, we got PlayStation. Uh, we got all this shit. We got food, and we think we're on top of the world. Where where uh, our government knows that everybody's coming for us. Uh, that's why we're trying to get resources. We're, we're nabbing up everything. China owns half of Africa right now. I'm just, I don't like being lied to when I know it's bullshit. And, uh, and I Do you think, think it's um, necessary sometimes? I mean, if we're kids, I mean, it's, it's necessary to a lot of kids, but I'm not a child. Tell me the truth, man. I know there's no Santa Claus. I know there's no but, fucking. But you fate. might be able to, you might be able to handle the truth, but can everybody? I think you should. I hope you should. We're only as strong as our weakest, uh, as the weakest part of our, our well, team. Well, that's the right? problem. Who knows how weak the weakest <laughs> part is? What do you think about something like this? Like, let's, like, not, not. Not to go like too far down the rabbit hole, but like the Declaration of Independence, for example. Most people know the opening of the Declaration of Independence, but most people don't know the grievances that are leveled against the king. If you actually read the grievances, a lot of them are lies. A lot of them are half-truths, partial truths. They're skewed because the Declaration of Independence is a piece of propaganda. Now, I'm not using that term to say that, ah, oh, fuck it, burn it, like, fuck America, everyone should just... No, that's not the point. The point is is to take a sober look at the very sort of founding documents that our country is based upon and to realize, well, even that has like lies within it. There's not like – it's not 100 percent quote unquote truthful because there are discrepancies in how we interpret things and our experience of things. But sometimes you have to generalize and you have to say, hey, man, this fucking king is being uh, uh, irrational and unreasonable. And we're not going to fucking stand for it anymore. Don't you guys agree with us? And you got to be like, fuck yeah. Sometimes you have to simplify it to create a narrative to galvanize people. No, yeah. or, or let's just take the, 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 the movie. So if, if we told everybody that Harvey Dent, turns out he was a real shitbag, he killed a bunch of cops. But by doing that, he's going to let all the – that's going to let all the mobsters, thousands of mobsters walk free and start criming again. Is it worth it? Is it worth just lying and saying, oh, you know what? Actually, it was Batman who killed all those people. Now we can continue to build a peaceful society with no crime. Uh, I, you know. Uh, yeah. I, and now, I and just, now you have a real Jesus fig- figure in the Harvey Dent. Yeah. You know? He's, right. he's kind of like the, the innocent that was held up, even though he wasn't innocent. But, I mean, 
uh, Dent wasn't innocent. But, like, that's the idea. Now you have, like, this Jesus figure that everyone can imitate. He's the peaceful one. He's the one that restores the juridical order. Now the law is powerful. Now you can have a good society because now you have fidelity to the social system itself. It works. It imposes justice. It manages justice. Other people can trust in it. And by having a system of trust, social trust is so important with, again, how do we manage resources? How do we punish crime? How do we go about our day-to-day lives? And now we have that trust restored. Sorry, guys. I got to agree with Rorschach uh, at the end of Watchmen. Never compromise, not even in the face of Armageddon. So even if it means letting all of those absolutely guilty convicts, you know, run loose for a few years, because the lie is not going to last. We see that in uh, The Dark Knight Rises, that there's even more disillusionment when the lies are revealed. We see that in Doomsday Clock when uh, Ozymandias's whole big scheme blows up uh, in his face within just a few years. Uh, the truth comes out, so better be honest about, hey, what Harvey Dent did personally at the end is reprehensible, but what he stood for, that's all still true and good, and that should be the inspiration, who he was before he was corrupted. Uh, I think people could discern the difference between those two things. Totally. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we're not, just treat so us like, like human beings. It's like when people say, if you're going to do something legal, just don't get caught. Yeah. It's like, if you're going to lie to me, just don't let me know ever that it was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Lies are for children and relationships. That's Ooh. it. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, and that note, we're going to head into the mailbag. So before we get into the voicemails, uh, I just want to read... We got a lot of emails on Starship Troopers, and uh, thank you guys so much for spending the time sending us these emails. It was a really interesting movie and a really interesting discussion. Uh, There is one thing that I want to read this one email from Walter, and then I want to clarify a couple things and actually ask you guys about the nature of satire. So this is from Walter. Walter says, Hi, Wisecrack. Having watched the movie and read the book, I agree with Jared that Starship Troopers does not feel like satire at face value. Only after reading some of Robert Heinlein's works did I begin to see where the satirical interpretation might emerge. Starship Troopers appears to wholeheartedly advocate galactic fascism, but his other book, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, seems to support lunar libertarianism, and his other book, Stranger in a Land, seems suggestive of embracing a Martian world regime. And then he goes on and says, perhaps Heinlein entertains a more relaxed disposition toward the role of ideology in art. Uh, so this made me think a lot because we got a lot of people saying like, oh, man, it's so obvious that it's a sat. Have you seen Starship Troopers, Greg? Love it. Some people were saying Rico. that it's so obvious that it's a satire. Like, how could Jared not see that? And I think I'm actually curious to hear what you guys think, because I think that a lot of satire, it's very dependent on the time period it came out and when you are consuming it. So, for example, and uh, this one's targeted towards you, Matthew. Matthew, when did you first read Watchmen? Um, I want to say that was around 2010 or so, uh, years and years after it came out. Uh, mm. Yeah. So Watchmen is a satire, but it came out in the 80s. And this was during like what I'm saying. The reason why Watchmen functions as a satire is because it takes a very gritty, realistic disposition of superheroes that are very similar to Batman and Superman with Dr. Manhattan and Night Owl. And. I guess if I watched or read Watchmen after Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, how would I ever pick up on the satirical elements? Because this realistic, gritty version of superheroes has already been done. Well, is it a satire or is it a deconstruction of the form or of the ethos? Well, we argued in one of our videos that it was a satire. Okay. Starship Troopers? No, Watchmen. Watchmen. Oh, Watchmen. Okay, okay, okay. I don't know. Did you get it immediately when you read it, Matthew? 
Uh, see, I had always uh, come to it, uh, understanding it to be a deconstruction, uh, not a satire. Uh, okay. And yeah, I'm still, uh, even after watching that Wisecrack video, not entirely persuaded myself on that <laughs> as the definition. So uh, yeah, whether I got it uh, immediately, no, I guess I'm still uh, trying to get but it. Even <laughs> as, but even as a deconstruction then, I mean, same goes. Uh, No, I definitely took it uh, far more at face value because, you know, I lived through the dark age of comics where everything was trying to imitate Watchmen. And so, you know, not just the Dark Knight itself, but all of 90s comics was so trying to replicate that that it was hard to see that this is responding to everything that came before it. Right. So, for example, I saw Starship Troopers for the first time 20 years after it came out. And there are other movies that came out in the 80s and 90s, like Zardoz, Scanners, Altered States, that are all very campy and have that campy aesthetic or the what was deemed over-the-top acting and stuff like that and, like, weird sets. And I guess, yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on this, Austin, because I feel like I look back at those movies and I see that they're campy, but I don't consider them satirical or deconstructions at all. And I guess not seeing Starship Troopers within the context of what else was happening that year, it perhaps muddied my ability to pick up on that? I mean, I guess it depends on a bunch of different factors. Like, are you familiar with the documentary Not Quite Hollywood about Australian cinema? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it's... uh, It's great. It's about, like, the sort of, like, emergence of the new wave and then, like, Ausploitation films and things like that. And... Like, so so many of these people are making these fucking horror films. There's this one called Razorback that's about, like, this big fucking crazy pig that goes on a rampage and is, like, killing people, right? It's like this the, a pig the size of a fucking truck or something like that. Like, is that a deconstruction of the horror genre? Is it a satire of the horror genre? I mean, it was a bunch of dudes that were trying to get some fucking tax credits uh, because the government was trying to stimulate the cinematic, uh, the Australian cinematic industry. So, and they were like, well, fuck it. Let's just have some boobs let's follow some tropes but at the same time we're going to make this ridiculous and over the top so there's like a i don't know there's like a sincerity and an authenticity and i think that's it is i I don't think that that would be a deconstruction of the horror genre whereas like a film like cabin in the woods is a deconstruction because cabin in the woods is intentionally trying to uh to to imitate and to transform at the same time so i think starship troopers is 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 similar in that it's both a deconstruction and therefore satirical. You can have a deconstruction that isn't satirical, I think, but it is deconstructive in that it's trying to kind of like shift, if you will, what is the standard by which we measure, you know, war films and by which we understand, you know, nationalism or uh, some sort of like, uh, like, like, personal pride about your identity. In this instance, it's like humans versus the other, you know, there's like a, there's some sort of like xenophobia that's going on there. Um, but it's satirical because it's fucking ludicrous and it's over the top and it's funny. Like all of the like join now videos and shit like that are this guy in a totally tropey voice saying totally cliche shit. And the sets are kind of kitsch and the outforms are kitschy or the uniforms, the outforms, the outfits are kitschy and the acting is kind of ridiculous and the things that they say are like tropey militaristic dialogue so in that sense i do think it's satirical because i just find it to be laugh out loud funny yeah but 
have you seen any have you seen altered states i mean that movie is full of kitsch it's super campy the acting is way over the top the jargon that they use the scientific jargon is way out of place but it's just it, it's a misguided script although somehow it was written by patty chievsky but i still love that movie <laughs> But do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you think that there's like a level of intentionality or authenticity that is required for satire? Like Verhoeven was clearly trying to make a point. Like he said that. Whereas Altered States, is it trying to make a sociopolitical point? No. But how do you know that unless you read the director's words? Well, I mean, but that's not really as important, right? We talked about that. Like people can watch. I remember the first few times I watched Starship Troopers, I had no idea that it was a satire. And that's oh that's right insu- okay so we're in agreement then. Well, but we we said this it can in the be podcast. read as a, it can be read as a satire. Yeah, I don't want to retread ground, but yeah, I mean it ought I just, to it ought to be understood in its satirical mode. However, at the same time, many people will watch it and not have any idea that it is satirical. But I, I was definitely in confused this... myself the first time what the point was, whether it was satire or because I, I think he trips up a little bit. I think he accidentally makes fascism too sexy like pretty yeah. protagonists you know that are well dressed and they're awesome hugo boss uniforms you know having fun space adventures you know across the galaxy like, and they have this wholesome americana backstory even though they're in venezuela or uh, they're in buenos aires but see that's but that's anyway. exactly his point he literally said that he wanted to do that and then at the very end remember we talked about this is that gotcha moment where at the very end as soon as you start saying damn i need to get together with my homies and find some hot people and we just need to get together and shower together naked and have like some sort of fraternity sorority of homies and then he's like oh yeah gotcha motherfucker you're a fascist you know it's it's yeah no i i think yeah. Yeah, we came to the conclusion that all that this blurry line is what makes it that much better of a satire or that much better of a movie of a text to analyze all those things. And the I mean, movie didn't like, do good the... in the box office, right? It did. What's that? It, it, probably it nobody was getting it. But it was a cult classic. Blame them. Yeah. People people love it though. Right. I mean, like if I if I dress up in remember was it Tom Green that dressed up in a fucking Hitler uniform and went to a, like a Jewish bar mitzvah or something like that? I heard that was a myth. Okay. Well, here's the okay if someone were to do that, for example, right, or like, uh, like the prince, Prince Harry, not Prince Harry, yeah, Prince Harry dressed up as as Hitler for like Halloween one year or something like yeah. that, right? And there were pictures of him. He got in big trouble when he was younger. Yeah. Like, is that is that like a deconstruction? Is that a satirical act? Is he trying to make a political point? No, he was just thought he would be fucking funny and goofy. Whereas if somebody does something that's trying to make a political point then it becomes more satirical. And that line, it, some people might find it to be a dangerous line to tread, you know, and that ultimately you might not be doing good. You might not be making the political statement that you're trying to make. I mean, real satire, to do real satire that is one, funny, two, provocative, three, thoughtful, four, interesting, and five, not going to be needlessly gratuitous is so fucking hard to do. You know, it's funny. We've gotten so many requests over the years to do a video on this YouTube channel called Filthy Frank, which is basically a guy making just as over the top, obscene, crude humor as possible. And I think people have been asking us to read it as under the lens of satire. And I remember I was talking with somebody who had followed the channel, who was one of our writers at the time, David, and he was like, yeah, as much as I want to fulfill the fans' request, it's really hard to see the line here because it kind of seems like they're just making crude, obscene humor and then kind of hiding behind the guise of satire. But where do you draw that line? It's it's confusing. Right. I mean, 
for me, I'm, you know, I'm always interested in analysis of culture, society, economic systems, institutions, whatever. And so for me, if it's informative and provocative, then there's something interesting in there. But if it's just simply gratuitous to try to, to try to shock, like shock jock radio to me isn't really interesting anymore. Like, cause I, I just don't find that to be necessarily beneficial for building human communities again. So that's, I think for me personally, that's the line. And I, I would want to engage at that level. Like, what are we doing with our satire here? Are we actually trying to to show somebody how absurd something is or how problematic something is or how difficult or complex these situations are? Like, what are we really trying to do? And I think that's important to always ask. Sure. All right. Don't want to dwell on this any longer. We're going to go to the voicemails. If you guys want to give us a call, it is 213 213- Five three four eight eight zero seven. I'm pretty sure that's it. Two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. We're gonna go with Kyle. Hey, it's Kyle calling for the Show Me the Medium podcast episode of Starship Troopers. I had a weird realization towards the end of the podcast, and I just wanted to get you guys' opinion on it. So, Jared, as you were talking about what exactly the movie was, and that could it be a satire? Maybe it's not a satire. Ryan specifically said, in comparison to Goebbels versus, God, his name's escaped me, I apologize. In comparison to the two movies, movies made by Goebbels and movies made by our director here, he said, Goebbels is responsible because it's clearly supposed to be, it's supposed to be making a Nazi out of you. But our director here isn't responsible because he's clearly making a satire. But then there's a quote from the author saying, I wasn't trying to make a satire. I was trying to make a movie and then asking you, would you really join? So essentially he's making a propaganda film in the knowledge that while he does not intend to radicalize anyone, he is making propaganda under the presumption that no reasonable person would go this way. So is he still responsible? He knows what he's doing before he does it. But he chooses to acknowledge that, well, we're killing bugs, we're not killing people. I just wanted to know you guys' opinion. Thanks. What do you guys think? I mean, this is about, like, the responsibility of the artist, right? Yeah, I think that was the discussion we had at the end of last time. Yeah. Matthew, what do you think? So, basically, we were talking about, like, at what point do artists have any responsibility to have their art make society a better place rather than a worse place is basically what we were talking about. No. So thank I, you. I know That's a what lot I of think. people have been no. questioning how much Matt Stone and Trey Parker are responsible for a lot of the current nihilism and the rise of the alt-right and, you know, trolling culture and whatnot. And I look at South Park and I see such a thoughtful show that, yes, it is gratuitous, but it's always gratuitous for a purpose. And as much as they're misinterpreted by some of their fans, I could never place any blame on Stone and Parker. And I'm not sure that the director of Starship Troopers either uh, could be blamed for radicalizing anyone. Now, am I saying that no artist is ever responsible? Uh, I wouldn't go that far either. So right. I, I don't know. Line. I got to think about it. Great. That's what I think that's ultimately we brought up with the whole Goebbels thing, because there is a line, obviously. I just don't know where the line is, but... I mean, until it's like the Supreme Court on porn. I know I'll know it when I see it. I mean, how 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 babified are we that I can't I can't draw a picture that I had a dream of 
and you saw the picture and it makes you go on a murderous rage, like I have to take credit for that. You know, that's my fault. No, you, you've had that inside of you the whole time. Um, like, it's just the same thing as like people uh, when when those kids did the Columbine shit and they started blaming on a Marilyn Manson. It's like, nah, dog, you, you know, you know whose fault that is? <laughs> your dad's fault for putting those guns in your crib. And, you know, you not you're not talking to your fucking kids. And uh, not showing them attention and love, and and not listening to them when they're getting bullied and shit. You know, it's not it's not the artist's fault. I, I mean, agree. It's Let's, usually the parents' I, fault. I, I so I'm of two minds here. <laughs> I, I really like Anthony Jeselnik, the comedian. Yeah, and it, he plays like this bad guy, right? Like that's his character. Yeah, yep. right. Character too. Character. Yeah, it's He's a character. A sweetheart. Yeah, and and. You know, he tells like rape jokes and AIDS jokes and murdering infant jokes. And and then at the very end of one of his specials that's on Netflix, he says he gets kind of like social social and political. And he says, uh, I was told to kind of like, you know, uh, censor myself. And he's like, but fuck that, because I'm not going to ever fucking allow some sort of system to tell me what to do. So fuck you. And it was a really powerful moment at the end of his show. So in one sense, I'm like, I get that. And I listen to a lot of comedians. Like, I list, I've listened to Greg's podcast. You know, I love Joe Rogan's podcast when he's got certain people on that I want to listen to. Like, dip my dip my toe in the bro pool. Um, and so I'm really interested in, like, you know, people being concerned that your free speech is being infringed upon. However, 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 at the same time, there is a sense in which we are social creatures. And we may not be aware of the effect that media has on our neurochemistry now, but in a hundred years, five hundred years, if the world hasn't been destroyed Ten. by an asteroid, <laughs> uh, we're going to be able to see how it is that actually, by watching violent films, that that does produce a sort of like anesthetized experience towards violence. Or watching uh, porn, it does anesthetize us and. Uh, and influence how it is that men treat women or how men and women treat sex. Um, these things, they do have an effect on us. We just don't know to what extent. And I think that we need to navigate between both of those. The idea that, yeah, we don't want to censor things entirely, but at the same time, we don't need to fetishize that like the artist just has free reign to do whatever the fuck he wants because guess what? We are adults and we can be better than just children that just want to do what they want to do. So I think it's both and, and it's a really difficult thing to navigate. And I think we've arrived at a good place in society currently where we say, here's the line, fighting words calls to immediate violence. And I would hope that any discussions about this or any information about neurochemistry or whatnot, any revelations there in the future, wouldn't move that line of free speech versus censorship. All right. Greg, you want to pick the next one? Oh, yeah. Hey, Wisecrack. It's Ryan. Uh, just listened to your uh, cast about... Uh, Starship Troopers, Starship Troopers, and uh, had a couple thoughts. Uh, I wanted to sort of contrast Jared's point. Uh, he said that he had kind of a an extreme view on the sort of uh, responsibility that a creator has to the art, or you know, arguably not art uh, that they put out into the world. Uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to counter that. I was kind of disappointed that nobody took the, the extreme opposite position. I, I find that, um, the things that are created and put out into the world by an artist or, you know, arguably, uh, if you want to say it's not art, um, any kind of a creator, um, I'm fully willing to grant that, uh, the creation, 
goes beyond the creator. Uh, I'm definitely not on the the train of saying that um, uh, the end-all be-all of a creation is the creator's description and uh, feelings about it. But that, that aside, um, I don't think it's fair to separate the two. I think that uh, especially when there is some level of intention as with like contrasting the uh you know the director starship troopers versus uh uh Goebbels and the um uh straight up propaganda uh obviously the the intention there is different, but I think that the responsibility and connection um is still very analogous, and that even even in a world where starship troopers has a you know, fascistic influence, uh, you know, hypothetically in the future. Like maybe if this is like some propaganda that, uh, some future fascistic government grabs a hold of and repurposes. I think that, you know, the director of the movie has, uh, a responsibility and a role to play in that eventual outcome. And I, I don't think that saying that, oh, it's art and, um, it's up for the viewer to decide. I don't think that that's really fair. I don't think you get to wash your hands of that entirely. Uh, but anyway, sorry I took so long today. Uh, appreciate y'all. Um, have a great day, man. I like Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, I, I totally, I, well, I totally get it though. Yeah. Like I understand that this is a complex issue. I'm not going to say that, oh, Ryan doesn't make any sense because he makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, I totally get it. Nobody wants horrible things to happen. And sometimes, like Austin said, art can lead to horrible things. It's just, what are we going to do about it? And that's, well, that's the, the question. Well, that's the issue is... We're, we're asking a couple different questions. One is a causal question in terms of cause and effect, right? So when the kids shoot up a school, is the cause, as in like the singular cause, because they listened to Marilyn Manson and played violent video games? Well, that seems to be a sort of reductive argument. However, are we supposed to then say that playing violent video games, watching porn, watching violent movies, uh, going to exploitation shows has no effect on us? Well... No, we can't say that either because we recognize that we are malleable, plastic beings that are affected by these external things. Yeah, so that's a very different question than should we punish people based on that or how should we, uh, how should we respond to the causal uh, influence of these various forces, right? I mean, like Jared, you bemoan the impact of social media a lot of times on All societal day. frames. Do you think that Mark Zuckerberg is responsible? He's an artist in a way. Nah, uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, dude, you're totally right, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna claim that I'm a hundred percent consistent as an individual because people are messy. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I do tame, tend to um, blame Zuckerberg, and I'm not a big fan of his. But it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great point. Um, but, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is. I'm just kind of yeah. Trying to no, neither do I. Yeah, neither do I. I just hate the fact that it's always the artists. It's never like pointed fingers at the government. You know, like um, it's a reason uh, Zuckerberg um, and every. It's a reason all these guys are so successful. You know, you don't think the government saw Facebook and saw everybody jumping on Facebook and was like, "Hey, Mark, let's give you all this money because we can pry into people's privacy." Uh, with with this being so huge, Twitter the same way, Instagram the same way. Uh, it's 1984. It's um, people always react to the artists more than the government that's supporting the artists, so they can actually get more power and gain more power. I just hate you know you're gonna point at Marilyn Manson. You don't think these kids 
uh, know what the military is doing in other countries too? You know, you don't think they know that uh, people are little kids are getting killed and and shit like that. I just I just hate that it's always at the art. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but the one thing <laughs> I will say in terms of Zuckerberg is that Zuckerberg doesn't create the content of Facebook, whereas an artist is always creating the content. Like you know. Paul Verhoeven didn't create cinema. He didn't create the movie-going experience. He just created Starship Troopers. So he is responsible for that content. I would say that the artist should have very, or just a lot of freedom. I mean, I want to say unlimited freedom, but once Mm -hmm. again, I do think that there is a line. I don't know where it is, but at least in my mind, it's far away. And uh, whereas, yeah, Zuckerberg, he created a medium that I think humanity just should is is not <laughs> equipped to have. <laughs> and the director of Starship Troop, he's German, right? He's Dutch. Oh, he's Dutch, yeah. Oh well, they you know they done some. Well, I mean they, they got they got invaded. He yeah. lived through Nazi occupation, so. Yeah. Anyway, we're gonna wrap it up, guys. Thank you so much for everyone for joining me. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Austin. If you guys want to continue stick around, hanging out with us. We're going to be talking for an extra 15 minutes, talking about the things that we're reading, things that we're watching outside of The Dark Knight and Starship Troopers. Uh, you can uh, hear it on our Patreon at wisecrackplus.com. Uh, and Greg is going to grace us with a story of how he almost got into a fight with Ashy Larry from Chappelle's show. I thought you forgot. <laughs> no, I didn't forget. <laughs> I thought you forgot. I was like, all right. All right, guys. Signing off for now. But first, where can we find you guys on the internet? Greg. Uh, you can catch me at uh, Greg the Grouch on Twitter, Greg Comedy on Instagram, and my website is gregcomedy.com. And your podcast? Oh, my podcast is uh, Black Stage on the Wisecrack Network. Check it out. It's all about comedy. And Matthew. You can find me at Matt J. Therio. On Twitter, that's T H E R I A U L T, and uh, at hubcityreview.com. So you're telling me I fucked up your last name at the beginning. God damn it. All right, and Austin. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, and then I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn that you can check out as well. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Until next week, peace. <laughs> <laughs>